When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala, and I know absolutely too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. With me, as always, is my co-host, the skeptic, the voice of the people, the little devil on my shoulder. I might keep going with, with that new <laughs> that new moniker, uh, Kristen Stuttered. Hey, Kristen. Hi, Joe. We're back. We, we are done back. a new episode in a little while. The, the past, I think, three out of the four weeks, we have not done a regular episode, but we're back. You don't know this, but we have begun a theme month. We've oh, begun no. one of our pun theme months, and I'm so delighted to announce the return of early in June, Lens. Wait, so are we going to be repeating the same themes no because there can't no, be too we can't yeah so. exactly so some of the themes will be the same some of them will not but you know given... you can't you can't leave something incredible like early inf june lens in the past no, you simply gotta bring not. it when oh you have gosh. greatness you have to recognize it i've always said that and you know this boy, uh, boy. but we have we have inductees from the early influence category that we should be addressing and why not do so in the perfectly named early in June Lintz theme month? So welcome back, Kristen, to early in June Lintz. I'm excited to do it again. And I'm excited to have our guest with us here today, who I think is a great person to kind of ring in early in June Lintz with us. Uh, he's the curator for the Onondaga Historical Association, Robert Searing, who I think I'm going to call Bob. So, hey, Bob. Hey, thank you. I appreciate the informalities. Very good. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, we keep it we keep it casual to make everybody more comfortable. So, Bob, why don't we start off with just kind of explaining what that means? You know, I I, I don't think our listeners are super familiar with the Onondaga Historical Association and specifically how your job connects to the life and work of early influence inductee this year, Elizabeth Cotton. Yeah, uh, with with pleasure, Joe. So uh, I'm the curator of history of the Onondaga Historical Association. We are a um, historical research facility and series of museums in Syracuse, New York, home of the Syracuse Orange. Uh, and uh, we're named after the Onondaga Nation, which is one of the six nations of the Haudenosaunee, uh, the people who have long uh, been part of the Northeast and have been here for thousands of years before then. So we're proud to carry that name forward. And um, I happen to sit in a 55,000 square foot museum. And amongst the many, uh, many treasure trove collection items that we have are one Grammy Award, um, and one Martin guitar from a certain Elizabeth Cotton of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, who spent her last few years in Syracuse. So very happy to be with you to talk about Liva, uh, Elizabeth and her um, incredible influence uh, on blues, on ragtime, on folk, on rock and roll and uh, and her 
I guess, much delayed induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, mm. whatever whatever that is. Yeah, right, exactly. Whatever that is. Whatever that is is a great, great way yes. to put it. I'm assuming you're coming into this with, uh, you know, like most of our guests, pretty low knowledge and uh, I, I was going to say understanding, but, you know, for, for a lot of people, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is just a little confounding, uh, almost by design. So I'm assuming that's kind of the context for you as well. Yeah, you know, as obviously as a as a historian, I and a, and a guy who works at a museum, I love the idea of being able to go to Cleveland and seeing all this really cool stuff. I, I think Michael Che made a great joke on Saturday Night Live a couple of weeks ago when this was all mm-hmm. in. He's like the crazy class this year, and he's like basically, which leads to the question, what is rock and roll? And I think that's sort of where I'm at, which is a wonderful sociological and all sorts of other questions. <laughs> we'll see how we do today. Yeah, right. That's a question we wrestle with constantly, but I think for this episode in particular it behooves us to not try to tackle the question, but, you know, just talk about Elizabeth Cotton in particular uh, and and kind of get a sense of the woman and, and the artist. Well, and you know, I'm like never on Twitter by design, but the Rock Hall was mentioned on SNL. So was that like, did a people weekend start update. tagging us in things? No, 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 no. Okay. I mean, like it was, it was like a weekend update joke that was very quick. That okay. was just like the inductees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame have been announced this week, including artists like Lionel Richie, Carly they Simon, don't make no sense. Eminem. Uh, yeah, just kind of putting out specifically how many artists, Dolly Parton, you know, how many mm-hmm. of those artists you don't seem to have much of a thread connecting them, let alone one that's rock and roll. So he just said, and that leads to the question, you know, what is rock and roll? And that Got was it. it. It did not make any waves uh, in any community, <laughs> let alone any waves. our. Okay. <laughs> just curious. You never know. Right. But as I was saying, yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a lot a bit about yeah. Elizabeth Cotton. And, you know, th- there's much to cover, but let's just, uh, let's talk about, let's, we'll start from the beginning you know, this is a this is an inductee who was born in the 19th century. Yeah, she's born in 1893 um, in, you know, what is essentially the old tobacco uh, section of North Carolina. Her father is a miner. Um, as the story goes, she doesn't even have a name. She famously tells this story during her Grammy Award winning live uh, album that came out uh, in the 80s where she said she was just called Little Sis uh, by her family. And she essentially gave herself the name Elizabeth when she got into grammar school in Chapel Hill. But uh, as Elizabeth told the story, she grew up around music, you know, and I think that's a really significant part of her story and what she represents in terms of being this early in front. I mean, she's 1893. She's born a year before Bessie Smith. I mean, this is, this is a, this is the beginning of the blues. This is so early on. And she grows up around ragtime music, which you can hear in her playing. And I mean, the incredible thing is she finds a banjo that her brother made uh, as a seven or eight year old picks it up messes around with it. She's a left-hander, a predilection, and she ends up turning the thing upside down. And she teaches herself to play guitar as an eight-year-old upside down. And, you know, not like Hendrix who restrung it. She plays it with the bass strings on the bottom and the treble strings on top. And this will give her this incredible sound, um, which is really uh, almost impossible to reproduce. But so as a very early, you know, young child, she's playing music, she's writing music, she's immersed in music, her uncles play and sing. Um, And so she's, you know, she's just immersed in music. And you can sort of get the sense that she is one of these figures in music that was put here for a very specific reason by whatever gods are controlling the universe to make music and to be a vessel uh, for music to come through. And so 
Um, yeah, from a very early age, she is she is there writing songs that are you know way beyond her years. I mean, the, some of the themes she's dealing with in Freight Train, in particular, which she says she wrote when she was about eleven, about death and longing, are really something. You know, I have an eleven year old son; he's not writing songs about about that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important to make that distinction that not only was she like starting to mess around with the guitar at that age, she was writing the songs that would uh, define her at that time as well and not recording them just kind of around the house just playing songs and and writing these incredible songs yeah which is again staggering to me i you know to to have the wherewithal to write them and you know the the styles all bleed together but the lyrics are incredible and then to remember them and then to not pick the guitar up i mean basically for 40 years and i don't want to get too far ahead of the story but yeah right well you, you had mentioned her unusual style of of playing and the fact that she played an upside down guitar which is going to lead to some especially if you are untrained you're just picking up a guitar you don't know it's string strung mm -hmm. backwards for you your uh style and the development of your style is going to be different could you help to explain how i mean it's called cotton picking now yep named after her but what that means and and what that style of playing technically means yeah absolutely i mean so she plays with two fingers uh, really is all she ever plays with which when you listen to the recording i mean i'm a guitar player i'm astonished at the sound that she's able to get with two fingers um and she's basically playing you know bass lines with her with her finger her index finger picking sometimes two strings at a time three strings at a time, and playing the bass uh, and playing the treble with her thumb so it's it's completely backwards i can't really grasp it uh, as a player but it gives her that ragtime sensibility. When you listen to her play the guitar, you can, you know, sort of hear like the Joplin lines on it, um, and you can see how she could pick it up. But I still, I don't know how she. I guess that to your point, she picked it up and didn't know what it was, so she just made sounds on it, and that worked out. Because I couldn't possibly play an F chord, you know, now with the guitar upside down without really thinking about it. Let alone to make the quick changes that she's making, and she's up and down the neck. But so that that really rhythmic. I mean, she's she's like a human metronome, and so precise. And and so melodic. I mean, it really is. It's it's incredible to listen to her play. It's really really soothing. Anyone that's heard her, if you haven't heard her, um, you know, people that are listening, to this, go out and listen to her as much as possible. She's all over Spotify. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's a drone, but a beautiful melody. Um, and and just perfect time and perfect spacing and and the voicing. Um, on top of her sort of haunting recorded voice, which she because we don't hear her sing until she's sixty, which is a whole other layer to the animal. But it's like I said, as a player, as a musician, as a student of music. It really is something to hear her, her make all that noise with two fingers on an upside down guitar. It's really, it's something special. So did she go on to continue playing the guitar upside down? Like, or did she wind up getting a left-handed strung guitar? Like how, how did that evolve? She keeps playing. So what ends up happening, Kristen, is that she gets married at 15 um, when she's down in Carolina and she has a religious conversion. Um, you know, this is sort of a part of the Bible belt down that way. And she gets married and, and basically she says that she's not going to play secular music anymore. And so she sort of puts the guitar down as she would tell people later on, she picked it up occasionally for some church functions, but, but in those days, sort of the guitar was seen as this secular instrument not to be had in church. And so she put it down. And then when she picked it back up, that was the way she had known to play it. And she just, 
she just continued to play it, you know, upside down. So we have one of her Martins in the collection and it's just a regular Martin that I would pick up and play right-handed, but she just played it upside down. Yeah. Cause when you, when you learn to play a certain way and then that's what you get used to, you know, there's really at that point, no uh, reason to try and learn a proper way because you're already, you're, you're done. You, you've yeah. figured out the way that works for you. <laughs> And then, you know, that's, so yeah, she, she continued to play that way her, her whole life, but she's, she did stop, which is a wild to think, you know, probably a time that would be early for a lot of people to get their first guitar, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. 16 or 15 is around the time when she puts it away for a, for a very long time. Yeah. She puts it away for an incredibly long time. And I mean, and this is one of the, I think the most fascinating parts about the story, you know, the serendipity of even knowing who Elizabeth Cotton is, you know, again, this is why I say the universe puts you in places where you're maybe supposed to be, you know, she, she doesn't play guitar. She has a, she has a daughter, Lizzie, her and her husband eventually divorce. And she sort of bounces around the mid Atlantic. I'm up to New York city and she's in Pennsylvania and she's in Baltimore. And then she ends up in Washington, DC. And it's her time in Washington, DC, where she, again, just by happenstance, runs into the Seeger family, you know, and without the Seeger family, we don't, we just don't know who she is. She's working um, as a counter worker at Landsberg Department Store in Washington, D.C. As the story goes, I guess uh, Peggy Seeger's mom would go in there with regularity and they just sort of hit it off. And she offered Libba a job as a domestic worker in their home. And uh, Elizabeth took the job. And sometime around 1946, 1947, after World War II, worked there with the Seeger family. So you've got Pete and Mike and Peggy all sort of growing up in this, you know, incredible environment for music and recording music and playing music. And it's everywhere. But she didn't play the guitar, I guess, for anybody. She was sort of sneaking it when they weren't around or whatever. And, and uh, Peggy, Michael, I was watching an interview with Michael Seeger a few weeks back, and he said that Peggy found her playing one day sort of by accident um and she was very embarrassed like she Mm. was she she was embarrassed i don't know if she was embarrassed that she caught like she felt like she was doing something she shouldn't be doing um but after 40 years basically of not playing it you know and she just sort of retaught herself and they were obviously in shock both by the fact that you know here was their you know person who worked with them for five years not only is she playing the guitar but she's playing the guitar incredibly well you know, um, and she's essentially saying, you know, I've written a couple of these songs. And so Michael Seeger starts to record her, um, you know, in 1956. Um, and then it just from there, it's meteoric and her rise to fame. Right. And truly happenstance. It's it's quite wow. remarkable. I mean, like we glossed over several decades that is just that could have been the rest of Libba's life, you know, where she was a domestic laborer bouncing around from D.C. to, like you said, you know, New York. Well, Chapel and that Hill. she happens into this musical family home and then that, that they happen to be connected enough to be able to then kind of break her. Oh, into, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, it's pretty mind blowing. I mean, one of the <laughs> one of the most, if potentially not the most like iconic folk family mm-hmm. that there is. And it, I don't know, it, it, to me, it makes me wonder, like, how many of these stories like hers were out there? But, you know, like she had to make the choice in her life to give it up. And then these circumstances aligned and uh, allowed for a platform and really a a megaphone to broadcast this. You know, it makes me wonder how many of these types of stories were just completely erased. Yeah, this is like one of those kind of 
lightning strikes kind of shot in the dark type of things that we even get to know who she is and talk about her now. And you think of how many people we've missed out on and that their talent never was uncovered or discovered by people because of choices and because of choices that they were forced to make because of societal structure. Oh no. Okay. All right. I'm back. Right. I'm but, back. you know, yeah, we come back to the, you know, uh, kind of good fortune that we great. We'll are focus on able the one that know. made it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And Truly, I mean, granted, yeah. how old was she when this, when this happened? She's in her 60s, I mean, she's probably. Yeah, she's about in her late 50s when she starts okay. working for the Seeger family. Yeah, she's 60 when she records for the first time, which is, again, just astonishing to think about. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the recording wasn't even a given. There is the kind of time in between the the kids learning her songs and the recording there was some activity where peggy took the song freight train kind of with her to london and was starting yeah. to starting to starting to play it at these folk shows and it started to catch on and then that set off a kind of roller coaster for that song specifically without Elizabeth Cotton having ever recorded it at all. Yeah, that story uh, blew my mind. I we were I was just at Paul McCartney concert at the Carrier Dome two or three days ago, and you know he the the Quarry Man apparently covered Freight Train, and so it gives rise to Skiffle, you know, because Peggy's there in England, and Skiffle is what you know starts mm-hmm. the so like there's this crazy through line where you know the, the Beatles and Libba Cotton and the Grateful Dead and Libba <laughs> Cotton again all by just this completely random meeting at a department store in Washington DC in 1947 I just I, I mean I mean I've been talking about Libba for weeks now since she was been inducted and I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around just how uh, completely uh, random this all this all is yeah and we should note we've been saying Libba but we, but we have not kind of explained that that was a moniker that was uh, derived from the inability of the Seeger children to say Elizabeth. And then she then ad- adopted that as her, as her nickname. Sure. But yeah, the, uh, the song freight train and let's let, before we kind of talk about it catching on and what happened and the people who covered it, let's talk about the origins of, of the song freight train and you know kind of where it came from freight train freight train run so fast freight train freight train run so fast please don't tell what train i'm on they won't know what route i'm gone yes yeah, so she says you know she's she's a young young girl eight nine years old and again this was sort of the old tobacco road and so the railroad apparently ran very close to where she lived and spent a lot of time and so she would hear the song she would hear the sound of the freight train go and this gave her you know the this gave her the idea to write the song and she and she did and i think that's something that i also think about her playing is got this rhythmic churn to it you know you can almost imagine the steam engine on the on the train sort of chugging down the tracks as she's plugging that one two and that you know that's it and again as an 11 year old girl to write that song and then to remember it and to bring to be able to bring it back uh you know 40 years after the fact and to teach it to i you know i imagine that for her what must have been a really cool experience teaching a young peggy seeger 
these songs at the same age that she was when she wrote them. You know, this this really cool synergy of those two young uh, female artists from drastically different backgrounds in so many different ways to come together over this song and for this song to then break. And this this hearkening back to because, again, so much of this is about the African-American experience, blues music, jazz music, that wh- where that comes from. You know, here is a here is a, a woman that is really one generation from slavery, you know, sitting in the tobacco region that was basically built by enslaved peoples, writing this song about the train that carried um, peoples and tobacco out out of out of chapel, never knowing when she's 11 writing it, that she is going to you know travel the world to play this song that she wrote. I just, it's it, like I said, it's just an incredible, incredible story. Yeah. And that is the song that is the, kind of the defining Elizabeth Cotton song, the iconic one, probably the most covered and, and the most known. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when, when Peggy was covering it at these shows and it started to catch on, it became a legitimate radio hit. There was a skiffle artist named Chaz McDevitt who reported it with the woman named Nancy Whiskey. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. I don't know what train he's on. Won't you tell me where he's gone? And the success of that is likely how it got to the Quarrymen and how people knew that song. And, you know, sadly, as that was all going on, some dudes in Britain kind of swooped in and stole the songwriting credit. Yeah, they did. I mean, and that happened to, you know, so many African-American artists of the period that were basically pirated off of, and we'll probably get to it later, but I mean, the night, one of the, again, which is where Libba's story is, is, is so exemplary, but extraordinary. And at the same time is that she... She a lot of wrongs that happen to other artists are righted in her story. So she is she is this sort of singular figure in a lot of ways. But yeah, they do. They swoop in, take it. I mean, it's it's really decades before that uh, egregious wrong is righted and only righted with the strength of the name of the Seeger family to be able to fight something like that. Absolutely. I think without, without that, that's a, that's a probably a difficult thing to do. Yeah. So, you know, she's, I, I, and there's a story that she didn't even really think about doing any recording official studio recording, at least until she saw somebody singing freight train on TV. What? And then, oh, and then wow. it was like, Oh, okay. Well maybe, maybe there is an audience for this kind of thing. And so, yeah, a woman, like we said, late, late fifties, early sixties kind of begins a recording career after, you know, decades of not doing it and, you know, decades since this stuff had been written. It's pretty crazy. I hadn't heard that story. That, that's, uh, that's, that's really wild. That's, that's, uh, that, that's just another, uh, that adds another layer to the just sheer serendipity of the whole thing. Yeah. I, I, assuming it's true, you know, sometimes it's hard <laughs> to verify these things. It, it sounds like a, uh, a conveniently retellable story, but you know, <laughs> I, I I did read it, so you know, wh- why why not believe it? <laughs> oh boy, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, is that is that is that no Wait, good? Do as you a, remember uh, where you read it? Can you cite a source? Yeah, it was written on a napkin in a bar. Is that great? Mm-hmm. Cool, reliable. <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, yeah. So then, w- with the help of of the Seeger family, she starts to record stuff, and then she starts to. Uh, perform live, which, which is really cool that, you know, she, she, at that point, it wasn't behind her. She embraced it and was excited to be able to 
uh, share her work with people live. Yeah. And I mean, she's such a gifted performer, you know, and, and I wonder if that's, you know, so much of that was playing as a, as a youngster growing up around other performers. I mean, it's clear that she grew up with so much music around her, but when you listen to her live recordings, she has such a tremendous rapport with the audience. Um, her storytelling, I mean, even when she's not playing is just mesmerizing and she's always sort of vamping you know, on stuff and just telling these great stories. I was listening to she's She's got something. She was telling this joke about driving in a taxi um, by a graveyard or something. And one, one of the, the taxi drivers says, ma'am, you know how many bodies are in that graveyard? And she says, well, no, I don't have any idea. And he goes, ma'am, all the bodies in that graveyard are dead or something like that. She sort of chuckles <laughs> and she's like this more macabre. And then she starts singing, you know, baby, it ain't no lie. But, um, <laughs> you know, so it, it, yeah, she, it, it, for her at, at her age, I mean, I'm exhausted just like mowing the lawn and I'm 40. I can't imagine 60 deciding you're going to start traveling the world and uh, seeing your songs recorded by, you know, the likes of Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and Peter Paul and Mary and then you're like all right you know let's let's go out and and, and do it uh, and to do it con you know consistently and to do it so well and she always she's just always on you know it's really it's really it's she's just a marvel I think if at 60 I discovered I was really good at something or whatever you know and then I that I could go and travel the world or whatever I think I you know I feel like that's like to rediscover a, like another chapter or like a another purpose to your life I think that is the kind of stuff that energizes a person you know through mm -hmm. their later years in particular and so it's just like pretty incredible right and not, not only you know it's not even so much discovering your your talent but understanding that there's an audience for it right mm -hmm. and something you've been doing your whole life has its value to people that you didn't really fully uh were ever able to see but now mm -hmm. can see on a uh, almost global scale yeah. if not you know within the uk that or wherever it, it's happening that people are yeah that, that people will will like this thing that was just almost second nature to you as as a kid. Yeah, and the timing of it too. Again, it's just it's it really is wild when you think about it. I mean, so she she that she finds the Seegers or the Seegers find her, you know, and then that she's there at the beginning of this great folk revival in the fifties. It, 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 it's like you wouldn't write this story script because it's sort of too many perfect, you know, fill-ins, mm -hmm. but you know, that she's there at the beginning. I mean, Odetta's first record comes out, I think, in 57. You know, and Elizabeth Cotton's next record comes out. That's, I mean, that's the same year she's recording, you know, with Seeger. And then the next year, I think her first record comes out. So, I mean, it's, it's just, again, it's, it's, it's just, and then, and then folk becomes like the dominant genre there for a little while in America. And then it just gives way to rock and roll. It's just, it's all too much to, to wrap my mind around sometimes. I mean, this is the kind of, it would make a great movie though. Like, because it's true, it would make such a great movie. I'm like, you know, in like, 10, 15 years, we can get Viola Davis, like continue like her career, you know, like- uh, Yeah, a good, a like, good role for casting. Yeah. yeah. You know, kind of thing. And I, I don't know, I'm like, I, although I'm always like, get someone a movie now. So then they, that's what I think will help them in, but she's already getting into the rock hall. So she doesn't need the biopic boost or the documentary boost. But I think more people knowing about this truly incredible story. Oh boy. Now I'm going to give some credit to the rock hall. Like I do think, <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that it is like, this is one of the things that they do well. Like that one of the things that can be, helpful about the rock and roll hall of fame is making 
lesser known, influential, important artists, like uplifting their names, you know, alongside the likes of every other music industry insider, a manager, whoever managed a fucking band, but like at the same time, you know, I'll take the wins where I can get them. And I think of this induction as like a very big win. I'm now getting very excited about it. You know, I, I think this is like, I feel every year kind of these like really great old uh, like blues and folk influencers that they've been putting in, I think have been really cool to learn about. And like this year, I'm like, this is going to be very cool. I'm, I know we'll get into what we think, how, how we think they'll do it. They'll probably just show a two minute movie and then never talk about it again. All right, moving on. But it is, it is amplification, you know, that, Mm And, and that's there's you know one thing the hall does well. It's just amplifying the voices of the marginalized. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, okay, go on. Well, I mean, to your point, I mean about the amplification. I mean, I certainly because because we are so blessed and honored to to house these you know two incredible parts of her life. You know, I've been busy just fielding phone calls and, and interview requests about 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 Elizabeth for for weeks now. So I mean, I can really speak to that. And I so I do think you know that the megaphone or you know the wall of sound that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is able to put out there uh, is, uh, yeah, this is great. And, it be, and again, because so much of rock and roll was, was taken from, from, from folks to be able to, anytime that they can be recognized and put up on the pedestal, we, they should be doing that as much as possible. So hopefully it's more than just a two minute video. I'd be great if they could get some players out there to, you know, to do some, a couple of renditions of some, some tunes, but we'll see. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At, at the moment, just the fact that her, her name is out there and, and knowing that people are contacting you and you're talking to folks, that's, I, I think, good evidence that the desired effect is, is taking place, that her name's out there. People are talking about her. And a lot of people, I mean, myself included, I'm not going to act like I really knew who Elizabeth Cotton was before this announcement. I mean, she luckily had this, you know, later part in her career where she was able to be visible and get some recognition before this. But still, I think an underrepresented and an uh, more unknown than she should be. Underrated might be, you know, a, a good word for that. But certainly someone who is not centered in a lot of these conversations the way she should be. And now, with the help of this induction, we can kind of course correct that. Yeah, hopefully. It's, I mean, it's funny to, to say that, but I was thinking the same thing. I mean, she won a Grammy, but she still is, you know, there's very few people know know who she is because of, because of the time and the circumstances. But. Right. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot more to talk to. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, and then when we come back, we'll have more about Elizabeth Cotton with Bob Searing. We'll be right back. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope over your break. You you gave a special little a little joke and a little reference uh, just for just for your friend and your new friend. Just a just a private little haha. Just have a private haha. Okay, so you know we we've kind of covered uh, Libba's life up until you know she's she's back out there performing live and she's actually recording her stuff, putting it uh, on wax, so to speak. And I want to, uh, I want to talk about the music. You know, we've talked about freight train a lot, you know, that's kind of the big signature song that stands above all the other ones. But I, from your perspective, Bob, what do you think are the other works uh, of her that are, are worth mentioning and that are kind of emblematic of her career? I mean, my personal favorite song, and this, you know, is, is Baby Day No Lie. Oh, Baby Day No Lie. Oh, Baby Day No Lie. Oh, Baby Day No Lie. No, this life I'm living is baby. Because I, you know, I love the Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia. So that was a song that um, I always loved that JGB did. Uh, and then when I, I mean, I, like yourself, I didn't know who, Libba Cotton was until I got this job about five years ago. And then when I realized sort of, oh my, wait, going down the road, feeling bad, this old traditional song that she covers in the 50s. Going down the road, feeling bad, honey, babe, Lord. Going down the road, feeling bad, honey, babe, Lord. And Shake Sugaree. Yeah, Shake Sugaree is a good one. Uh, and that's one where she's not doing the vocals. Uh, that is her great-granddaughter, Brenda Evans who is doing the vocals. And at the time, she is a little girl. Oh, out of me, didn't I shake sugary? Everything I got is done in palm. So those connections to me as, as, a, as a wayward, a Grateful Dead fan are, are I think, I songs that are touchstones and really are uh, epitomize her style, her lyricism um, in her playing. I mean, it's just a really... I mean, that song, Baby, Ain't No Lie, you know, sort of about wishing that this mean old lady that was mean to her and when she was a girl would die uh, is like, you know, this, which, which is vicious. But, you know, we've all we've all been there, you know, mm -hmm. both as children and as adults. So there's a there's a real universality to it. Uh, and again, I mean, it's sort of cutting in its lyrics. But, yeah, I mean, I think those are the songs. And I mean, I her, her sensibility as a player, I mean, she's got sort of I think like three sort of styles. 
Um, she does a lot of great instrumental, you know, basic ragtime stuff, which again, as, as just a player are really impressive. Um, but then you've got, you know, sometimes you'll, and this is really indicative of a lot of, you know, the, the classic root stuff is just, it's a, it's a, it's a line with a little melody change over top of it over a traditional. So she's got, but I mean, that's the one I would say, you know, go, go check out. Vastapol is another good one because she's got a lot of funky tunings on that. guitar players out there you know she tunes i think that down uh, two whole steps when she plays that uh song so she's so she's messing around with a lot of real cool tunings and and and, and again all that with two fingers but um yeah oh baby it ain't no lie is definitely my fave george buck is a good tune with another mm-hmm. sort of co- cool lyric that she does I mean, those are the ones that I think, you know, that are my personal favorites that I get like, oh, because it really does speak to her sensibility. It speaks to her musicianship and, and her lyricism is really there. And to think she wrote him as a child is um, just again. Yeah. Just, and wow. and l- let's make it clear. The Oh, Baby, and a Lie was uh, covered frequently by the, the Grateful Dead. And what's cool is that, you know, Liva lived a long life. You know, the reports are that she had a relationship with uh, Jerry Garcia, who would come by with with the band to see her when they were swinging through town. And, you know, they kind of paid their respects and, and spent some time with her, which I think is very sweet. Yeah, I, I read that. There was a, one of the reporters that reached out to me a couple of weeks ago was telling me the story, but she got in touch with one of uh, Libba's grandsons and he was telling this story. Of, I guess they were over there, over here on the south side of Syracuse, just a few minutes from where I am right now. And they were there. And and I guess Jerry showed up probably with, with Robert Hunter. And he said that the quote in the story was something like, yeah, you know, they we're just there. And like these two guys showed up and I just like, who are these dirty old white guys? I thought one of them was like Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> dirty so I Santa. Just imagined, like, I would just imagine dirty like Jerry Santa. Garcia, yeah. yeah, stoned to the bejesus in Libba Cotton's kitchen, you know, like talking about and, and having jams. I mean, as the story goes, they would have jams. And, you know, there's this other story, and, and you mentioned earlier, Joe, there's sort of, there's a lot of stories, maybe apocryphal, who knows, around Little, but one of them is is about Jerry, you know, and the idea that somebody reached out, uh, you know, to Jerry in the 70s about it, and that he had been sort of instrumental, like the Seegers behind the scenes, and maybe getting Elizabeth the royalties that she was supposed to get from some of these tunes. And again, I I, I don't know if any of that is true, but but it's clear that Jerry uh, it was was would stop by, and I mean, the Dead played, you know, upstate New York Constantly, they were in Syracuse a lot and Binghamton a lot. So um, I, I just, yeah, as, a, as an old dead, as an old dead fan, I just love the idea of a stoned old Santa Claus to this like eight year old. Yeah, that, it's a it's a great picture. And you know, a, a lot of those artists, you know, who take not you know who utilize the work take might be a little strong, but sometimes it's true. It's just I get the point I'm getting at is the respects aren't always paid. You know, you think about someone like, say, Elvis, who, who, you know, certainly took a lot and profited a lot from, you know, work that he, you know, did not create. He certainly interpreted it, but, you know, didn't always give the due respect. But to to know that that Jerry Garcia understood where it came from and uh, appreciated and went out of his way to to make a visit. And if, you know, if that story is true, fight for her credit is is a is a good thing so you mentioned that she did win a grammy which is i think 
really cool. And also, you know, like you said, you know, for someone who was so unknown, the fact that she won a Grammy and we still, she's still a relatively obscure character, but she won a, a Best Ethnic and Traditional Recording Grammy uh, in 1985 for a live album that she put out. What was the category? Best Ethnic and Traditional Recording which, interestingly enough, an award that many years prior, Harry Belafonte, the other early influence oh. inductee, had won twice. Excellent. Best ethnic and what? Traditional. Traditional. Just the buzzwords. I'm, mm, I'm my, yeah. you know, I'm a little, it's I'm a little on edge about it. I understand it. I understand it was a different time. I know that words change and meanings change and all of that. Think, I'm aware. Yeah, I think this is where a lot of folk wound up i know i think she beat buckwheat zydeco that year so there's like some polka involved i think okay yeah i I am truly curious like what was this category all about mm -hmm. what's it called now yeah it's it's it has like world music or international or something it has been divided at this point to best traditional folk album and and best contemporary folk album So it seems like if that's where the award is now, it always kind of just meant folk. I mean, it was called folk performance before. So the the kind of trajectory of the category is it was- So they added ethnic when like black people started winning it. Like what's going on here? That's a good question. That's a great question. I'm curious about that. Because also ethnic, ethnic could refer to like the origins, like I said, of polka. Of polka, right. or yeah, and or like no. yeah, exactly, like international music, world right, like music. flamenco That's what, music, man. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of scrolling through the category, and I see like an album called 18th Century Traditional Music of Japan. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess okay. that's where that came from, but you know, it's it's a interesting category. That's interesting. Um, yeah, for how long was it a category? Sorry, did you say that there was one more year after she won, after Elizabeth Cotton won for a live album? before it was changed the name was changed to just folk yeah traditional and contemporary do we still have that category now traditional contemporary folk it looks like the traditional folk album was a category until 2011 and then they merged the contemporary and the traditional folk just into one there turns out they didn't need to (laughs) i imagine i mean i wonder i'm like is there a category i could win a grammy and like you know could i get something i make something so specific that it would have very little competition legit i think with a lot of with there's so like many stand-up albums probably that happens. no but i mean with that it's like, like that's like superstars but yes. like what are like the weird little yeah i'm just like mm-hmm. what's no a- there are definitely categories within the grammys that are so specific that like if say you make a lot of instrumentals you know there's categories just for instrumentals so you know you see jeff beck winning a lot of these <laughs> instrumental grammys just because I'm sure there's a lot out there, but not as many as, you know, the other categories, the rock and hip hop or whatever. But yeah, is this a, is this a new cause for you? Try to get, uh, try to get Kristen a Grammy. Well, I'm like, yeah, maybe I'm going to try. Maybe that's something that I can, maybe that'll be my raison d'etre is like to win a, a Grammy. A jazz instrumentalist just to get the No, I need to do something that you don't have to have, have any musical of- talent for. <laughs> or like I could, maybe I got to really like work on my spoken word skills or something. Do they still have a spoken word mm-hmm. Grammy? For sure. 
Uh, they definitely but the, do. I mean, I do think that there's just a lot of talented poets out there who could really also, crush me. I think spoken word <laughs> tends to go to like audiobooks that like Michelle Obama reads and stuff. That's like oh. the category where you, yeah. Okay. This I gotta, seems like this dream is is fat, quickly dying. It's quickly dying. But I mean, if anybody out there has a category that they know of that they think I could win a Grammy in, please email us at who cares about the rock call who cares about what rock, rock call <laughs> unless you have a separate unless you have a make a separate email for this specifically no. <laughs> who cares about Kristen getting a grammy at gmail.com do not just send send it to joe and he'll forward it to me and uh serious answers only thank you all right anyway there's a little, little tangent on the on the Grammy category. And also not to belittle this like genius woman who got a, who won a Grammy finally in her nineties. Like, yeah, she was 91. Yeah. So not to, not to belittle her talent. I am just, I suddenly had a little bit of a dream. I'm looking for, for purpose. So, um, you know, well, let, let, let her be an example. There's, it's never too late to find, exactly. to find it's, your purpose. That's I'm for sure. like, what did I do when I was 11? That could, that people would just love now <laughs> or love 80 years later. Yeah. yeah. Or, or yeah. Love in, in 20 or 30 years. Yeah. What could, what, mm, let's see. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> did, did people <laughs> like a lot of, uh, I don't know, lip syncs to uh, the bangles and stuff. You could really bring those back as a 60 year old woman. <laughs> okay. Moving on. This, yeah. This, so anyway, talk about so, her career. yeah. And she was, uh, she was at, at times decorated. There is an awards section of her, of her Wikipedia that, oh, you know, yeah. she was nominated for another Grammy for, uh, kind of a 20th anniversary concert album and the national heritage fellowship awarded her the national endowment for the arts. They had a big concert for her at the Smithsonian in 1982. She performed at the bicentennial uh, celebration in 1976. So, I mean, yeah, toward the end of her, you know, the last several years of her life, she's really getting a lot of recognition nationally and internationally, sort of a, like a third or fourth act. Uh, when you think about it, they, we named her the Syracuse, city of Syracuse named her a living treasure while she was still uh, living on the South side in 1983 and really um, doted on her quite a bit uh, as they should. We're very a happy to have treasure. her. How a living wonderful. treasure. Yeah. A living treasure. Oh, I really like, wait, so when, how did she end up in Syracuse? So she, she had been in D.C., being hanging with the Seegers. Then she takes a long trip to Europe, goes yep. all around, you know, gets visited by Dirty Santa and the gang. <laughs> uh, and then she winds up in upstate New York. Yeah, that's the way it ends up. So her, her actually her grand her grand one of her grandchildren ended up in Syracuse. And so it became a little bit of a way ground for her family. She had a couple family members here and then her daughter ended up here. So she's here living with a, a couple members of her family over on the south side of Syracuse. She came to Syracuse. Since 1978, um, and yeah, she lived out the rest of her years. Um, uh, just a, like I said, just a few blocks from where I'm at. Um, and it was one of these things where she had obviously been, you know, famous at that point, and the sort of the laurels just kept coming, and the city, you know, people living in the city, uh, you know, of all persuasions, colors, and creeds, loved her. She was just beloved. And like I said, in 1982, the city got around to naming her a living treasure. Um, and you know, they had a lot of festivals where she played in Syracuse with regularity, and then and, 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 and then she passed away, unfortunately, you know, in 1987, but her family uh, was still here for quite a long time, um, and that's how we ended up, uh, you know, coming by. 
by uh, her Grammy and her Martin uh, later on in, in the 2000s. But I may have just jumped us a bit too far. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, like we can we can talk about all this unless you feel like you've you've skipped some stuff you want to you want to touch on. That's kind no, of... no, no. I think that's just about it. I mean, it's you know, she's really. I and again, just to think about her as a nine. I mean, she's in her 90s, you know, and she's being celebrated. You know, just the the rewardingness that that must have been, and also just the surreal aspect of it. Again, I keep thinking about just as a as a fellow human being, what that must have been like. The 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 chapters of this woman's extraordinary life, um, and then to finally be this recognized and to have, I think, played for. I think she played for two presidents. I think she played for. I think when she was in England at one point, she played for you know the royal family. I mean, it's just an incredible thing. And then, and then, you know, as Kristen was sort of saying, the, the sort of funny part about it, that she's doing a lot of this from, you know, Syracuse, which in the late 70s and early 80s is sort of a, a community that's becoming, you know, one of the sort of symbolic Rust Belt cities, you know, in the United States and in a, in a, in a rather economically depressed part of the city as well. So she's really become sort of a champion of the Black community here in Syracuse as well at a time where um, they really uh, need some champions. So she, she does a lot of really good work on the South side of Syracuse, her and her family uses her name to really do some wonderful things in the community. And there's a uh, there's a Libba Cotton Grove. There is, yeah. There's a park uh, just uh, down on South State Street, down in the old 15th Ward, with a really beautiful statue of her playing a guitar um, and uh, you know her name underneath it. And uh, her family was there for the unveiling. Um, and it's yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful spot. It's a wonderful green space in an otherwise you know uh, sort of concrete jungle situation. And um, so it's a nice place to go. You know, I don't necessarily know how many of the folks that live in the area are aware anymore. There's this story. It was probably as good a place as any tell it. Just when the news was announced, I, I have friends that are uh, teachers in the Syracuse City School District, and Syracuse at this point is, is a really um, tough uh, economic situation for a lot of those kids. But he asked me to come in to see to some middle schoolers, and the news of her induction had just been announced. So I pulled the Grammy out of the case and took it down to the class thinking, you know, man, these are seventh or eighth grade kids. I know, you know, I've always loved music, as I imagine you folks have as well, to, you know, see and hold a Grammy. And I felt like, I mean, so I get there and I say, Chris, I said, look, I brought Libba's Grammy. And he's like, oh, he's like, oh, man, this is unbelievable. Uh -huh. And uh, so I've got this thing hidden. And I asked the kids if anybody's heard of Libba Cotton, and none of them had, of course. And so I played a song for her, I sold her playing Freight Train. And, um, you know, some of them were into it. Some of them were just couldn't believe like what this what this was. And then um, I said, and, and how many of you know what the Grammys are? And I swear, one kid out of 22 raises his hand. So oh, I'm just no. like, wah, wah, wah. there goes your big reveal. <laughs> Network television is shaking, is it's absolutely quivering in its boots right now. Man, people keep talking about how the Grammys are. Meanwhile, I'm out here trying to win one. <laughs> how many, right. I, like just right. as people couldn't care less, I'm out here trying to uh, yeah, make that my your... way into the Grammys, make that my big, my big plan. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I'm like, what award would be impressive to, I guess they're not even Gen Z now. It's what's after Gen Z alpha. I think I looked this really? up recently. Is that what they are? Would that be middle after, schoolers? Yeah. Oh, maybe middle schools are, still, schoolers zoomers, are still zoomers. They're still in Gen Z. So, but I'm like, what would Gen Z care about with like, oh, I don't think award a traditional awards uh, register at all. Like, Unl they don't unless it's like, I think sometimes YouTube gives you a plaque if you if you get like a million a subscribers or something. Or subscribers, <laughs> subs. I think. Uh, yeah. I, I guess it would be like views, followers, or subscribers, or well, something like that. Well, there was you like said that. there was one kid who knew the Grammys, so I guess take take the victory <laughs> wherever you <laughs> can get it. <laughs> no, it was it was uh, yeah, that was a real one. Uh, that was like, oh man, you're old, man. You're getting mm -hmm. old, man. Yeah. Wow. Well, you tried. I appreciate that you tried to to 
connect to the youth. Thank you, sir. I, yeah. I appreciate that. I don't know if we're at this stage yet, but has the Rock Hall reached out to you? Because that seems the that Grammy and maybe the Martin guitar seems like something they do inductee exhibits that won't mm-hmm. be going up for uh, another few months, but they do exhibits for the inductees. And that sounds like something that they will probably want to get you to loan to them. Yeah, we I have not we have not been contacted, Joe, to answer your question from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, I'm I'm I'll be surprised if we aren't contacted mm-hmm. um, because to your point, it just seems like a no brainer. Hopefully that means I can finagle a trip to to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to check, yeah. some, to check some stuff out. To get to Cleveland and, and check it out, I've only uh, I've only driven through and driven by, so I would I'd love to get out and check it out. But yeah, we're we, you know and we'd love to be a you know part of of helping to honor her. So hopefully that happens at some point. Yeah, I get the sense that it will. Now she's inducted as an early influence. That is the specific kind of subheading for her induction. And so I want to discuss. You know, it's some some names have come up before already, but kind of what we think her influence is and what her influence means. I mean, we talked a little bit about Jerry Garcia and that's, that's a big one. That's a guy who has, has covered her and and really uh, connected to her music, but who are some of the other artists that have, have covered her and and we think are, you know, make her an early influence. I mean, Dylan would be the big one that stands out to me. Taj Mahal uh, did a couple of her tunes in the 70s and 80s. Everybody in the folk scene covered Freight Train at one point or another. And I mean, and we mentioned it earlier with the skiffle. I mean, skiffle is, you know, what gets all those players in England, you know, and, and it's those English bands that repackage the blues and sell it back to white teenagers in America. So it's like without that, you know, there is no, that is, you know, that is rock and roll as far as, you know, a lot of people are concerned. So um, if, if, you know, if Freight Train is over there and is and is cited as as you know we've seen and read in a couple different places as the beginning uh, of the skiffle craze then that you know right there is at the that's ground zero for rock and roll in england you know and all that stuff so i mean i think that her influence is is profound when you look at it from that perspective now i know that we have covered skiffle on the show it's come up it's come up for sure uh, but you're saying for maybe the people well, you know, out there what who in the damn hell the is term. skiffle? Is it what it, it, it? Okay, I guess my inclination is to believe that it is what it sounds like, which is you know, kind of you're you're like skiffling around on the fretboard, you're skiffling around on your guitar, <laughs> your fingers are skiffling all around, and that's what, and and skiffly do out. Like what's going on? Who who's a big skip? Is there like a main song that features skiffle in it that I would be able to just go, oh, that's what that is? The best I would describe it is like really almost country-ish, but really fast paced. I mean, I think they were on a lot of like greenies and stuff back in the day, like the guys that were skiffle players, they were playing fast. Um, You know, it's not stuff that I necessarily would like to listen to, but you can, when you, when you, when you hear it, uh, and I only know this for my obsession with the Beatles and like when the anthology came out when I was a teenager, so you'd be like, I had the same thought, like, what is skiffle? And then you put on your record, like, oh, okay, I could see how like, if you're listening to, yeah, yeah, you're skiffling, I'm skiffling around and you know, I got the, I got the methamphetamines and you're doing the skiffle and you've got, you know, and then, and then you put a little Gene Vincent or, you know, a little Bebopalula on there. Okay, I, I, you know, and then Elvis Presley comes along and okay, I see, you know, I see what, you know, the quarrymen are doing, but it's, it's a very English thing. Yeah, and, and the bringing up the Beatles is, is kind of one of the big things about it, because they wanted to play skiffle. That's historically for rock and roll, the Beatles, specifically in their earlier incarnation as the quarrymen were a skiffle group. 
they were playing skiffle. You know, uh, there's a guy named Lonnie Donegan. Sorry. Okay, cool. Yes. Wait, I've heard that name. Lonnie Donegan is like the king of skiffle. That's like if you're if you're looking to kind of understand what skiffle sounds like, I think starting with Lonnie Donegan and Rock Island Line is like the the big song from him. There is like an element almost of like a jug band. Yes, to that's what I was going to say. It sounds like British bluegrass. It sounds mm-hmm. like that's really what I was feeling when I was listening to it. It is disconcerting to hear someone with a British accent do kind of a Southern twang, like an American Southern twang and kind of like, uh, it, it is, it's very weird to me. And uh, I say, well, you say, you're all right then, boy. You don't have to pay me nothing. Just get them on through. So the train goes through the toll gate, and as it goes through, you got up a little bit of steam. Mm-hmm. To it, take it, those, that fr- the phrasing. And, yeah, yeah, the phrasing as in particular of kind of like American Southern bluegrass music, and then also that kind of like, I guess the skiffle, which sounds very much like washboardy banjo-y. It's got very bluegrass feeling to it. But then you can hear, because they were all obsessed with like honky-tonk music. And right. like, uh, of course, you know, you think of anybody, Joe Cocker, the Rolling Stones, like all of them, Elton John, like every single person in the 60s, all those British bands were just like straight up being mm-hmm. like, how can we do this thing? The thing we uh, really want to do. Yeah. It's <laughs> honky cat. It's honky yeah. cat. I mean, it's very weird to me because that music isn't that it was like when they repackaged it with like, you know, white British people and sold it back to us. We were like, we love it, you know? And it was not like bluegrass was ever big on the, in mainstream music in America. So I don't know, just listening to that. So I was interesting to hear you hear someone's like English accent slip through when they're being like, and coming on down the train line, like kind of thing. And then, but then they're like that line and you're like, wait, what is, what am I? doesn't add up. The the pieces don't exactly fit together, but they're jammed in there anyway. So I got a little lesson in skiffle. (laughs) A little skiffle lesson. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Elizabeth's influence was on skiffle, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and you can hear also like in that kind of music, too, you can hear also where the Beatles were going and where all of the music that was going to like fuel the British invasion. You can hear it in that kind of music that is very clearly filtered American southern roots music so Mm -hmm. very interesting i guess maybe i i had always known that in the grand scheme of things but i hadn't thought about it specifically welcome to the world of skiffle welcome to the rest of your life Kristen. yes (laughs) post skiffle post skiffle and let's talk a little bit about uh you know this induction that will be happening at the ceremony in november you know with the early influence inductees last year we they did not devote a full induction like normally it's little documentary someone gives a speech and then someone inducts and plays and if they're not with us anymore there's some someone else accepts and then there is a performance a tribute performance of some sort uh it seems like given that they induct way more people now than they used to there's not as much time in the ceremony these side categories don't get as much attention and so like last year with someone like Charlie Patton, who 
did not live very long and there's only two photographs of him. There was not a, a video package because there was nothing to be in there. And there was just a Gary Clark Jr. performance of High Water Everywhere. But I mean, then, they could have excerpted our episode. They, I mean, like if they needed the footage, it was, uh, we were I'm definitely plated, talking about him. And played it over to those two photos. But then there, you know, Kraftwerk and Gil Scott Heron, who are obviously much, much later and much more contemporary, especially you might even category. call them later influences. Yeah, uh, there was obviously a lot of a lot of footage for for those guys. But when we look at Libba, you know, there is footage, you know, because she lived into the '80s, so we could get a package. We likely will get some sort of someone is going to do something essentially, and I guess the question is who would be a good candidate to be involved in the induction of Libba. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, I think it's going to be Gary Clark Jr. I know he's covered freight train and they clearly love him. And he's like one of the few, like kind of big names in blues. Right. And so, you know, the options are kind of limited. I get the sense that uh, he did. He did Charlie Patton, Charlie Patton last year Mm -hmm. too. Do you think that that you don't think anybody's going to going to notice? I mean, no, (laughs) sadly, especially because the the lack of attention given to these categories at the ceremony, I get the sense. And if he's not, if he doesn't play, maybe he'll do that thing where he's giving the speech in the video as they run the package. I could see that as well. That's a that's a great. I mean, the one thing this is just my my and this will never happen. But when you listen to her play the guitar, there's a lot of reminder. I'm reminded a lot of the way Lindsey Buckingham picks mm. on "Been Down One Time," like that uh-huh. melody line. It's like I could because the, the way she played guitar was so unique. It would be you know so I would love to hear Gary Clark do an interpretation of "Freight Train." I don't think I've heard it, but yeah, from just a straight guitar player pen standpoint, that would be a that would be something to behold if Buckingham would do it. Them, them. Bill Hader could show up and do it that way. That would be fun. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Get get both Buckingham's <laughs> together. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, there's also, depending on, you know, if they want to find a new Gary Clark Jr. And by that, I mean someone who isn't as big of a name because they've been throwing him out there since, you know, 2013, you know, way before he kind of broke. Uh, there's a woman named Rhiannon Giddens who uh, wrote a really great piece about Libba in Rolling Stone after her induction, and she covered Shake Sugary on her first LP. She feels like someone who, you know, if, you know, I, she was prominently featured in the country music documentary that Ken Burns did. Mm. Um, All right. And so, you know, that's, that's someone that could be interesting. And as I just said, she, has one of Libba's songs on one of her albums. So she so she knows the work. And that could be interesting as well. Or, you know, they could go to someone like Joan Baez. Do you think that there's going to be any connection drawn or like line kind of implied in some way between Elizabeth Cotton and Dolly Parton? Like with regard to why we are inducting hmm. Dolly this year, the inclusion of the banjo in like the history of rock and roll and things like that. Just something to That's kind of. That's an interesting question. Yeah. I, I, I would guess no, just because I think the lineage is more folk than country when you're, when you're drawing those lines. I mean, that was the Grammy. It was. Um... Right. Yeah. If we, if we go by Grammy categories, which we do No, I mean, but you know, it's, it seems like the impact and the people who uh, reference Libba, 
come from the folk side of things as opposed to the to the country. So that would be my guess. Is I don't think there would necessarily be any acknowledgement unless Dolly chose to do it, you know, live, having been inspired, having seen a little video, you know, an hour prior. It could happen. We've seen what we've seen. She's highly influenceable. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you know, that's what uh, if I had to guess what the induction is, is going to kind of look like, I think we're we're either getting like Gary Clark playing freight train or we're just getting a video. I, I don't I, you know, I don't I don't know that there's going to be really much more to it, but we'll we'll get something. And I hope we get a video. It, you know, when we didn't get a video for Charlie Patton last year it felt like the audience was not educated on who Charlie Patton was. Yes. And also it was like a, it was such a strange performance. You know what I mean? It was just a giant picture of him. And then the, the, maybe, well, in the auditorium, the sound was very, very bad. So it's Mm -hmm. hard to say what the, what we can expect. I, I I hope that we wouldn't get something. So I would hope we'd get something more meaningful than, than what we got for Charlie Patton. Well, I yeah, would hope yeah. there's so much excellent footage of her at her best. I mean, I, I you know, you make a great point. And that's great. the other thing is that are there documentaries about her? Or is there anything out there that like, yeah, stuff for them to pull from sounds like yes. There's a lot of recordings of her performing. There's not really a proper documentary as far as I know, but there's a there's a treasure trove of of recordings of her performing. I mean, there's a couple of her playing right in her house here in Syracuse in the early 80s with her very raspy, beautiful, soulful voice playing over the guitar that we have in the collection, which which would be a wonderful addition. And if they would, you know, have somebody play it in real life, uh, that would be great because there just aren't many human beings uh, like Elizabeth Cotton, you know, to honor her is mm-hmm. a real opportunity for them. Uh, you know yeah well knowing that there's there's footage i get the sense that then we will see a package maybe presented in the video by gary clark jr the other thing about a tribute performance though is that a person in a guitar is an easy production wise a really easy setup and breakdown Mm -hmm. which you know if you're trying to move stuff along you know i could see them being like we can squeak this in because it's not we don't have to load in a bunch of gear and also you know folk songs are short mm-hmm. yeah it's like tiktok generation it's like some mm-hmm. of her songs are a minute and a half i mean it's perfect see yeah. now if we could get her t- trending on tiktok get her a soundbite on tiktok that would be impressive kids would be like <laughs> i know that song from tiktok yeah, that, that's the they grammy for real would they for real would they <laughs> I, I, yeah, I work with right. kids a lot now and like they'll come up and request a song sometimes i'll like play music while we're doing work and stuff and they'll request a song and they'll be like i want the song it's called momentum it's from the internet <laughs> they'll just say that and they yeah. they literally mean a song that plays in the video game among us <laughs> sure it's wild. Okay. Sorry. Um, kids these days. Kids Boy. these days, et cetera. <laughs> How have I become? Well, Bob, thank you so much for joining us and, and talking about Elizabeth Cotton with us. Is there anything else that, you know, we haven't brought up that you would like to, you would like to say about this incredible artist? No, I don't. I just want to thank you uh, guys for having me on to talk about her. And if you're ever in Syracuse, please uh, come by and uh, say hello to the Onondaga Historical Association. You can come see Libba's Grammy and, uh, and her guitar. And uh, hopefully you guys know what a Grammy is. So you won't 
won't be as unimpressed as the students that I showed it to. Maybe I'll have one by then. <laughs> Good luck, right? Skiffle. Yeah, bring back skiffle. Yeah, get skiffle. a skiffle category going. I think oh, I see. Boy. I can see this happening. The return of skiffle. Coming uh, on down the line. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. Thank you again, Bob. Really do appreciate it. Truly. Uh, does the Historical Association or you personally have a social media or anything you want to plug? Yeah, we're. Uh, you can visit us at cnyhistory.org and we are on uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. No no TikTok as of yet. Our uh, clientele is a little older, but there we are. But we'll see. Never say never. <laughs> That's right. All right. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you. And of course, our listeners can follow us at RockallPod on Twitter and Instagram. RockallPod at gmail.com is the email. If you want Kristen to see that message, you need to designate that somewhere in your email. Otherwise, she doesn't want to see it, and I'm not going to forward it to her. Uh, Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us. Five stars only. Anything less than five would be rude and does not help us to grow and become visible and make our way into that nasty little algorithm. Uh, Thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo. Thank you to Yusuf Kim for the music. And thank you to Pantheon Podcasts for hosting us. I'm Joe Quazala. I'm Kristen Studdard. And who cares about the Rock Hall? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.